Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Do you ever find yourself asking, where did the time go? What we often mean by this is that we don't remember where the time went. When time isn't memorable, we feel like it is slipping through our fingers. Time management guru Lara Vanderkam, the acclaimed author of What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, is back with her newest book, Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. Vanderkam isn't trying to shave off 30 seconds here or there. She's interested in the emotional and psychological side of the 168 hours everyone has each week. Learn to linger in great experiences no matter how busy you are through mindset shifts that alter your perception of time. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Laura Vanderkam. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've written a really interesting book called Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. So on a scale of 1 to 10 today, how busy do you feel? I don't feel that busy at all today. I don't know, maybe 6 or so. Um I'm not traveling anywhere today, so that kind of helps matters. I'm just working out of the home office. It's interesting because we have this strange cult of busyness in our culture, right? People think if they're busy, they're being productive, and people love, like people hate saying they're not busy, right? It's almost you feel like you're going to be judged if you say if you say you're not busy. But part of what you get into the book is that this actually is counterproductive, right? That people actually, I mean, you tell the story of this one CEO that actually maps out. He loves blank space on his calendar, and he's a lot more productive because of it. Yeah, I mean, we this idea of busy. Um, I mean, it's a nice way of saying that the demand for my time is extremely high, um, which is a way of saying how important we are, right? So it's it's a way of showing how important we are without actually using those words. Um, but you know, to constantly talk about how busy we are can be counterproductive because it we start to believe that story. I mean, we start to believe that we don't have time for the things that matter to us. Um, so, you know, instead of walking around with the story that I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I think it's more helpful to walk around with the story that I do have time for the things that matter to me. It certainly helps us feel more calm about our time. Right. Like when people say to you, like, I don't have time, do you just want to say, no, you choose not to make the time? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we try to use nicer language, um, but I mean, in our own heads, I think it helps to... Anytime you catch yourself saying, I don't have time, substitute the language, it's not a priority. And if that is not, if it's not a priority, it's not a priority. Like, that's perfectly fine. We should just own that truth. There are many things in life that are not priorities for us. Um, you know, I, another bit of language to use, I suggest people think like, well, this thing you're not doing, like if somebody offered to pay you $100,000 to do it, like my guess is it would rise up the priority list pretty quickly at that point. So once you think of it that way, it's like, well, of course, it's not that I completely lack the time to do it. It's just that it's not important enough for me right now uh, to get to it. And and I think using this language reminds us that a lot of time is a choice. There are some things we can't control, but many things we can. Yeah. One of the running themes I picked up in your book is sort of throughout the chapters is this sort of moving away from from passivity towards agency like i think a lot of people feel talk in ways and think in ways like they're victims of time like time is happening to them and their schedules just happening to them and you're actually trying to get people to actually like even what you said there i choose to not make it a priority there you're you're framing things in terms of your own agency right like your own choices and there's an empowerment to say i'm choosing this and not that right 
Yeah, I think that sense of agency is is key. And, you know, it may be that there are big chunks of your time that you are not able to, within the structure of your current life, you know, choose what you're going to do with necessarily. But walking around with the story that we are ultimately in charge of our time allows us to see possibilities. I mean, you might start seeing like, oh, well, I have 10 minutes here to read a book. And it's not hours, like I'd, maybe I'd prefer to read hours and I don't have hours right now, but I have 10 minutes. And once you start seeing that, well, you're like, oh, well, I'm the kind of person who can read. Like I, I have time to read. And you, then you start getting motivated to scale these things up. So it's just a much more useful story to walk around with. It helps us see what changes we can make. And you actually for this project you did a time journal right you you kept your time for like a year so i've tracked my time for about three years now uh continuously and then i had other people track their time um just one particular day in march of 2017 that i had 900 people record and answer questions about and you know that you basically what's the thing's interesting to me is like if you don't get 7.4 hours of sleep you're gonna crash (laughs) <laughs> right, like, like that. It'll come in naps. Or you said some. For, you say some people, it's going to be like six point five. Others going to be like eight point three. But this is a really valuable tool, right? Because you know exactly how much sleep, and you know what time you're not going to have if you don't get it. Yeah, no, I I found from my time logs that over the long run, I will average to 7.4 hours of sleep per day. That doesn't mean I sleep 7.4 hours every single day. It doesn't even mean that I average 51.8 every single week. But over a period of like a month or two, that's what the average will come out to. So if I have a bad week, I'll wind up catching up on that time. The next week, I'll be going to bed early. I'll getting naps on weekends or, you know, sleeping through the alarm, something like that. Uh, If I've gotten more than enough sleep, if I've been really disciplined, about, you know, getting to bed at a certain time before I need to, you know, enough before I need to wake up in the morning, I'll start waking up on my own, um, you know, pretty early, uh, just because my body's gotten enough sleep. And so when you know that number about yourself, you can really start to plan around it. I might wish that I only needed 6.4 hours instead of 7.4 hours, but like I'm going to get to 7.4 hours one way or the other. So better to get to it in a healthy way um, that doesn't involve like falling asleep in places I shouldn't fall asleep. Uh, better to just plan for it uh, and, and accept that. So figure out what your number is uh, and try and build that sort of structurally into your life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I found, you know, as a, I, I, your observations about what you learn from the time journal fasting, like there's one part where you're talking about how like, I, I, I was, my had a stupid broken CD player in my car and I didn't realize I had this goal of listening to all these great musical works and I was losing it to like serious radio and top 40, like stuff, like just this little thing. And now, but because you journaled everything, you realize, okay, these are how many hours I'm listening to this in the car when I could be doing like educational stuff with podcasts, listening to It's really interesting, like what you notice, right? Like about yeah. your time when you actually do a time journal. Because there are things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. I mean, I write and talk about this topic all the time. Um, so you think I'd like know all about my time, but you know, I didn't. And, and I, in my mind, you know, because I normally work out of my home office, so I don't have a commute, like I wasn't building into my mental model of life, like time in the car. Like this was not what I thought would be a huge category because I'm like, oh, I'm not one of those people who has to drive 45 minutes to work every morning and drive 45 minutes home. So I don't need to worry about time in the car. I track my time. I see I'm spending more than an hour a day in the car. It might not be a daily commute, but one way or the other, it's averaging out to more than an hour a day. And I'm realizing, you know, my CD player is broken. I haven't gotten this fixed. Like I haven't been really good about getting music on my iPhone or anything. So I'm listening to the radio. 
And I don't even like the radio stations I'm particularly listening to. <laughs> but I'm listening to this for like an hour a day. And you realize like, well, wow, I'm, you know, telling myself like I'm, I'm a fairly busy person. You know, I'm a working parent. I got four small kids. I got all this stuff going on in my life. And here I am spending an hour a day listening to stuff I don't even care about. So, I mean, you know, it's once you see that, you can start to try to make better choices with that time and, and not just let it slip away. Yeah, you know, you tell the story in the beginning of the book that I found fascinating about this principal who did a time journal. And he basically, it changed his whole approach to leading the school. I mean, it's fascinating because you, you, you talk about how he realized like the stuff he really wanted, like instructional time and time doing faculty development, he was doing very, not a lot of. And, and sort of the, the sort of bureaucratic thing stuff that you would think would drive in a school administrator crazy. He's spending a lot more of his time doing that, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing about running a school, I mean, anyone who's familiar with schools, it's like a constant crisis, right? Like there's something's going wrong. The school bus is late. You know, there's a discipline issue. Another teacher is absent. The sub has a problem. You know, there's a million things that can go wrong. And if you're not careful as a principal, you're going to wind up spending all your time on these various fires that you need to put out. And yet that's really not the highest value use of a principal's time. If you think about what a principal is is best at it's it's leading and managing the teachers and making sure that they are happy that they are effective um, that the good ones are being celebrated and and challenged to do more that the ones who are having difficulty are are being worked with so that they can do better like that is what a principal needs to be spending his time doing not necessarily managing the cafeteria and so um, this this project that this principal was part of this um, professional development project uh, was all about tracking time like they had. A, a person come in and follow him around and track his time for a week and see what he was doing with his time. And once he saw that, he said, well, I'm spending this percent of my time on the high value stuff and I'm spending a lot of time on everything else. How can I start scaling that up? And so by asking that question, he started to figure out, well, okay, I'm going to block in time for these things. I'm going to assign some of the stuff I'm doing to other people. And as he started spending more time, you know, actually managing the teachers in a positive way, um, they start doing better. They start leading their classrooms more effectively. Uh, you know, things start going well in the school. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's time. And we often think like, oh, time management is just about like, how much am I getting done? Am I getting through my to-do list? But it, it can have broader implications as well. Would you like, would you love to just like do Donald Trump's time journal? Do you think it's just like cable news, Fox and Friends, Fox and Friends, Twitter attack, Twitter attack, Fox and Friends, Twitter attack, McDonald's? Well, I, I have, I mean, it would be fascinating to see his or anyone else in, in a position of, of high authority. Um, because I think similar to the principal thing, like you can get derailed by a million different crises. And, and the higher up you are and the sort of bigger the job you have, the more likely that is to happen. And, and certainly in our distracted world, even people who don't have important jobs can get distracted by a million different things. Um, I'm guessing so, you're not you know, going to see in his journal. Reading thick policy briefing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe he stays up late and does maybe it. Does. I, yeah, who maybe knows, he does. right? Maybe like, he does. You know, we just we just don't know. And and but it would be I, fascinating I mean, to see or anyone else. To know, Barack Obama started his days for some some would think relatively late, like nine nine thirty, because he really made a priority to work out and eat breakfast with his kids every day. Like he was very intentional about family breakfast and seeing the kids out the door. So, you know, he didn't do like the 7.30, you know, uh, presidential day briefing. He started to stay a little later and tried to kind of really end the day 
with dinner, family dinner, which is, it, 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 I mean, I think that's one of the greatest things about the Obamas, right? They, they, mo- they modeled some real intentionality with time around the yeah. family in, in the most incredible pressure cooking time demanding job probably you can have. And I'm always amazed when people, again, who are in, in very big jobs are, are recognizing this. Often what, you know, you see with that, with what Obama was doing is starting a little later and making sure he had, you know, breakfast and the workout in is that if you wait until the end of the day to do those sorts of things, it can get away from you. I mean, if you say, okay, you know, a family dinner probably sometimes didn't happen if like, you know, there's a massive foreign policy crisis, like you know, the day is going to get away from you. Whereas if you start the day with the family breakfast, at least you've had that. Uh, and, you know, this happens for people in more normal jobs too, that, you know, you meant to get home at a good time, but that last conference call ran really late. You can feel really bad about that. But if family meals are a priority. Maybe say like, well, we're going to do family breakfast. We're always going to have that meal first. So we're going to make sure that happens. Or, you know, I, you could tell yourself like, I want to do a workout at the end of the day, but then the end of the day, you're tired. Um, and it's really hard to convince yourself to go to the gym. Whereas if you get up in the morning, you have more energy and focus and discipline, you might be able to get it done. So if it's important to you, have it happen first. And, and you use the garden as a metaphor, right? I mean, it's really interesting. The conclusion of the, your tending the garden chapter, you talk about Central Park, which is fascinating and how it's like, broken up into 46 sectors or something so that each one of these things like it, and there's like a, a supervisor for each right so this this huge organic unit that's broken down to manageable pieces so that it can be kept uh, beautiful and ordered right yeah. So, I mean, anyone who sort of knew the New York City in the 70s and 80s, I mean, Central Park was this kind of rundown place that people kind of stood at the edge and looked in because it had this reputation of being this crime filled wilderness. Um, and, you know, what happened in the late 80s, 90s uh, started being taken over um, by a, a conservancy, the Central Park Conservancy, which is this great public private partnership. But one of the most important things they did is they instituted this, you know, zone accountability system. So there's 49 zones in Central Park. Each has a master gardener. The master gardener is fully responsible for whatever goes on in that plot of Central Park. And so that person manages the volunteers, manages whatever goes on. So if there's a problem in that area, that person is responsible for it. Um, and that has helped turn the park around. I mean, it's like problems get fixed because there's a person to go to about, you know, fixing that problem. And it's the same thing with life in general, like this idea of having sort of accountability for a time. We have to know the state of our gardens, know the plot, know where the time really goes. Um, but it's it's also about, you know, constantly monitoring and saying, okay, oh, now we've got the weeds coming in. I'm going to take those weeds out. No, I think I'd like to have some roses over here. Let me see if I can get some better roses in here. And, you know, having this mindset that it's never done. Like, there's never one point where you're like, oh, I never have to deal with my garden again. Uh, you know, you constantly have to be aware of it and work on it. But you can also really enjoy it, too. And over time, you kind of build this garden into something that works for you, that makes a, a beautiful and, and well-lived life. So that that's kind of the metaphor of our, our schedules and our time and our lives as, as gardens. And you talk about, uh, in the book, you have a chapter about making life memorable. And, and what's interesting to me, too, is, you know, you talk about the significance of memory and how much... You know, okay, think about, you know, what did you do on this date two years ago? And unless it was something really significant, like I graduated college or something, or, you know, I got married, it, you probably are not going to remember it. And, and all of these 8,000 some hours somebody might, or, you know, uh, you know, like however many hours you have in a, in a lifetime, a lot of those will just disappear. It's like, it's like, it's like your hard drive getting fragged, right? Like, cause you're not being present to and remembering experiences it's like there's this um what does the t.s Eliot say we had the experience but we missed the meaning and so much of that meaning making comes through through 
through experience and memory, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when I do this thing with people, I've asked them what they spent, you know, today, two years ago doing, and, and most people have absolutely no idea. Um, I'm sure being human, you were probably upset about various things. You may have enjoyed various things. You were irritated at various points. You, you remember none of it. Um, and what happens when so much of these sort of same days stack up is that whole years can kind of disappear into memory sinkholes. I mean, you think about people measuring time only in the changing heights of children. Like you see a kid you haven't seen in four years. You're like, oh, wow, have you, you've really grown. I mean, well, because it didn't fill the cognitive space of like four years in your mind. You're sort of surprised at how big the child now is. And, you know, some of that's inevitable, but I think we can remember more of time, keep it from disappearing into these memory sinkholes by making time more memorable, like putting in things into your time that you will actually remember. And when we have more memories, then in our minds, we have more time. That's how your brain remembers units of time is how many memories you have from that time unit. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't have to be elaborate, but just answering the question of why today is different. Like, why is today different from yesterday? Why is today different from what tomorrow is going to be like? And if you can answer that question, you have a much better chance of remembering any given day. It's really interesting, too, because you talk a lot in the book throughout about mindfulness and the significance of being mindful. But it's funny because I think a lot of people think of like this sort of you, you talk about these three selves, these three ways you experience time. Right? There's the pre, there's the future planning, anticipating self, the reflective uh, retrospective self, right? The remembering self. And then there's the present to experience now self. No, the mindfulness thing, you, you might think like, okay, really live in the now. But you say actually the most fickle kind of self is the in the moment self. And actually what's really going to enrich your experiences is the, is, is investing in the anticipating planning, looking towards the future self and the retrospective remembering self. And then the present thing will kind of take care of itself. But if you let the present thing run, it's going to be like letting the six-year-old like plan all the all the all the family meals, right? We're going to have marshmallows, and we're going to have yeah, we're going <laughs> yeah. to have root beer, we're going to have candy, we're going to have this like all six meals. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. 
If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, kids kids are very in the moment, but that's not always a good thing. I mean, yeah, they they would uh, never go to bed and they would eat marshmallows for dinner every night. So, um, I mean, it's not a bad thing to think about the past and to think about the future. That's part of being an adult. And um, one of the things I talk about in, in Off the Clock is this idea of, of pampering the present like a spoiled child. That's a phrase I got from a philosopher of like, we, we tend to overinvest in what our experiencing self wants to do because we inhabit the experiencing self. That's our physical body. That's how we're experiencing the world. So when you're, you know, experiencing self is tired and just got home from work and, you know, doesn't want to do anything, you'll listen to that self because that's what's there. But, you know, when... And, and it, ta- it takes, we, we, it also takes the least energy, right? The experience. Like, it takes the least energy. Have, that's why we just watch TV you, you, or surf the web. That's where you can just what, go with the flow and react as opposed to yeah. the... the, the anticipating self and the reflective self you have to kind of hunker down right and 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 kind of conceptualize things and and, and get a get a map instead of just like kind of letting things happen yeah i mean your anticipating self does not really think you know what i would like to spend you know 363 of the next 365 nights doing nothing except like eating takeout and watching tv like that is not something your anticipating self would would think like they want to have adventures they want to do cool things they want to do stuff with friends the remembering self is also not going to remember those 363 out of 365 nights spent watching tv it remembers stuff like you know you're having a dinner party with friends or going for um a hike after work when it's summer and you can do that for like two hours after work or something i mean those are the sorts of things that we actually remember and they're more fun than this sort of effortless fun but because they take effort um they're they're harder to pull off and and so as we think about our lives we want to make sure we have a good balance i'm not saying like never watch netflix or whatever you know that's fine it's just you don't want to over invest in that sort of fun you want to make sure you have some effortful fun as well yeah it's funny because i've i I read something recently about about hobby like the kind of like leisure time that's that is the most fulfilling and leads to flourishing and they're like don't like just binge watch, like take up a hobby, like learn, like it practice, you know, like, uh, what is the Greek word? Poyea or something like, like, like learn, like nurture a kind of human excellence that will make you more mindful, that you'll enjoy more. You'll, you know, like the, the, these kinds of things, it, that kind of recreation actually is sort of the compounded interest kind of recreation versus just the sort of like, you know, uh, okay, I I saw like a blockbuster film. I sat and ate a bunch of popcorn, and now it made no. For me, this was Avengers: Infinity War. I'm like, that was just one big comic book. There was no, and I love comic book movies, but there was no beginning, no end. It was just like an issue of a comic book, and I was like, I, yeah. I just lost like two hours and forty five minutes of my life. Well, the, and and certain hobbies actually help us recreate, and that's that word recreation or rejuvenate. I mean, they actually add to your energy levels, um, and. You know, they have this pleasurable experience of kind of losing track of time as you're deeply absorbed in them. So, yeah, uh, effortful fun is, is often worth the effort. Um, and, and so that's what I talk about, making sure we privilege both the anticipating self and the remembering self and not just the, you know, whiny experiencing self. And you you entreat people in the book. Don't fill time. Like, don't just fill up your calendar. Don't just like don't pass. Again, this goes back to agency, right? Like, don't. And then, again, you talk about the CEO that liked to keep his calendar blank because, and he was incredibly productive because he had all this time to react to things, to put time into things as they popped up. You know, like that, the, there was a sort of intentionality 
built in that allowed him to sort of not have to be actually to be proactively reactive maybe say like like instead yeah. of sort of reactively reactive he was proactively reactive well because what happens is you know when people's schedules are completely packed and they've got a meeting every 30 minutes through the whole day well then when some crisis comes up you don't have space to deal with it i mean either you're going to have to shove something else off that was there on your calendar um or you're not going to be able to deal with your crisis or if somebody needs a decision on something you can't devote space to it because you're already booked up with the other things and so what he sort of figured out is like the question should not be like, am I free to meet? Like when people propose a meeting, they're like, can you meet this, this, or this time? The first question should always be, do we absolutely need to? Right, right. Right? Let's let's ask that first. Like, And not even just like, would it be nice in the grand scheme of things to meet? But like, think about all the other things that could happen with this unit of time. And if this, you know, obligation is not going to rise to the level of like a nine or a 10 on a, you know, one through 10 scale... Like, don't do it because something else will come up that will be a nine or 10 and you won't be able to do it. Uh, and, and so you want to leave this open space. I heard Tim Ferriss interviewing the CEO of Bumble, the, you know, this female centered dating app, you know, where the, you know, the women always have to make the first move. I, I, her name escapes me, but fascinating interview. And both to Ferriss and, and she agreed that like with employees, they like, if there's a problem, they say, don't come to me without two or three proposed solutions. So don't just come in, pitch a problem, right? And then say, okay, do it. Like come so that you've thought through the problem and you even give me your, your number one prioritized list. I might override you, but I, I probably won't. You know, so that, just reframing that sort of like the problem meeting thing into like a thing where actually uh, by the time you get into the meeting, it's built in that there's going to be a, 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 a solution decided on, not yeah, just a sort of like a feedback loop that, goes circuitously forever there's no point in having a meeting unless something in the world is going to change as a result of all you people coming back you know coming together and spending this time on something um whereas you think you know, a lot of meetings happen because people need to share information it's like well there's other ways to share information or you know that you i need a quick answer on something okay well why have a meeting like just ask the person like call them and ask you know that you need an answer on something there's the formal meetings extract costs in terms of like, you know, if you've got something scheduled for 10 a.m., you stop doing anything deeper by 9.45 a.m. So it's like lost that transition time. Like once you get back from your meeting, you go, people cycle through all their transition rituals. Again, they're checking email, they're looking at their headlines. Like, so it takes a while for them to ease back into work. See, like this one hour meeting has taken at least 90 minutes in terms of their, you know, focus and all that. Um, it chops up the day. So then it appears that there isn't time left over for other things for like deeper thinking. So, you know, you want to be really, really careful about formally scheduling things into your life. Um, you know, and especially another, another thing that might be worth thinking about is there are certain times when we're better able to do sort of focused, intense work and other times where, you know, we can't. And sometimes people are like, well, we always need to have our meetings in the morning because that's when people are more focused. It's like, well, maybe if you're really needing to make very difficult decisions and feeding off each other. But if, if it's sort of a lower status thing, put it in the afternoon because it's going to happen anyway. Like people are going to be there. They're going to show up. They won't be asleep because nobody really sleeps in a meeting. That's kind of rude. Um, but if you try to do the focus work in the afternoon and have the meetings in the morning, the focus work won't get done. So, you know, it's it's about matching the right work to the right time. It's interesting. Like, you know. One of the things I found is that I've, I work out at home now and use like a lot of the beach body stuff, the people that do like P90X and say it largely because I can binge watch television when I do it. And also it's the same thing about the meeting thing, going to the gym, which I used to like to do, but it just takes 
so much time to get there, right? Settle in, put my stuff in. I'm waiting on machines. I'm kind of, you know what I mean? Where I can get like in a, in a third of the time, I can get like a, an incredible workout, right? That's focused and it's stuff that I wouldn't normally do myself because it's creative moves, like professionals on these videos. And I catch up on my television shows. It's like, all, oh, and, and I'm done. You know, I, I, you know, I roll into like, in the time it takes me to go to the gym, I can work out, watch my television show, eat my breakfast, shower, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. But uh, I mean, I think you also have to know what motivates you, right? So right, right. for um, some people, the social aspect for, of the gym is for is, some people, the social aspect, is, is or if they're the trying thing. to like meet people, meet friends, you know, if it's a like pickup spot, whatever, like that's, that's totally cool. And if that's what's going to get you to the gym, like go for it. Um, if, if you're really just in it to get the sweat, well, then clearly there are other ways to, to do that. I'm, I'm a runner myself. Like, I don't really want to be exercising around other people. I've done group exercise classes in the past. I'm like, yeah, not, not my thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like to just put on my shoes and go run and then I'm done and, and, uh, be with my own thoughts for a while. Uh, so, you know, with, with four kids around, I don't really need to have other people <laughs> so much. Do you find technology is helpful here too? Like, I mean, for instance, the way we scheduled this um, conversation, you know, I just schedule once app and there's lots of apps like it where you actually can block off. I only do meetings or, you know, these times there, I only do interviews, you know, there are only interview spots on certain times. They're not like all day, you know, it's like it, 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 some of those technologies seem to like, give an added advantage of like, all right, you know, this is my time for these kinds of conversations and you don't have a choice to box me in someplace else. Yeah, I think they can work. I, I recently had a weird thing with somebody scheduling software that the only date it showed them available was like one date in August. <laughs> That's like, a busy person. Like, well, I don't know if it's a busy person. I'm like, you got to change the software. You can just have your assistant send me that one time in August if this is really the case. Like, you don't have to send me to the scheduling software. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was... I think that can work for people. Um, I actually use a printed calendar. Like I have. You are old um, school, retro. I am so old school. But there's reasons for it. I mean, like, you know, I don't lose stuff. Like it's on the calendar. Um, I've actively written it down. So it's like in my head as well as, you know, being on the calendar. I can also see if a date is getting really busy uh, because there's a lot of stuff like scribbled around the margins for different time. And that's usually a sign that like, yeah, stop doing that. Like stop putting stuff on that date. Um, and I also like to see totally open days. Like that's kind of fun to see a totally open day. Um, and then I get motivated to keep it totally open um, because it, like that sounds awesome. That sounds really fun. It's interesting too in the book you point because I mean when people become parents, right? Nobody thinks they have any time. And you talk two stories like one, a woman who has triplets and she was really, she's sleeping like 6.2 hours a night or something, which you know, it's a little on the low average of normal, but not for somebody with a kid, especially with triplets. And, and you know, she had more time than she thought, right? And, and, and you mentioned this other guy who was like an entrepreneur and his wife, he decided he would be, the, he and his wife wanted to have at least one parent that was primary staying at home for nurturing the kids, right? And he thought, you know, I, I, I'm going to, like, I love this. He, he is like, I'm going to still do professional things. And he limited his goals on like a note card, index card. And if the goal couldn't get on that, it wasn't going to get done. And he had like one of the most productive couple of years of his life while he was a stay-at-home parent. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was really an exercise in like ruthless prioritization. And I don't, you know, want to make anyone who's like a stay at home parent feel bad listening to this, like, well, wait, I didn't launch two businesses while I was like caring for my infant like that. It's not going to happen for everyone. But, um, you know, it was really about like, I'm, I have 15 hours a week, I can work what is going to happen within those 15 hours that is worth that time um, and was very ruthless about what went on that list. Um, but, it, you know, if you do three important things a day, that is 15 important things a week. Uh, that's 750 important things a year. So you, you can get a lot done if, if you're focused on that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's nuances to this, of course. Like, I, I wouldn't recommend doing this when you're like 23 years old. Like, you need to have a certain amount of experience and connections and all that built up so that you can make the best use of a limited period of time. Um, but, you know, if you do need to cut your hours down for a while for some reason, you can probably still get a lot done. You just have to be very careful about what you're choosing to do. Yeah. It, it, again, it gets back to the intentionality piece. And also, you talk a lot in the book about time perception and how people's time perception shapes their productivity and their management of time, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, time is just time, but we perceive it in different ways. And if you sort of feel like it is abundant, you make different choices than if you don't. There is a great uh, scene in, I think it's the Deep Blue Sea or something. I've, it's the movie with the crazy sharks and LL Cool J is in it. And they said, <laughs> they said they were talking about um, Einstein's theory of relativity. And he says, well, I'll tell you what it is. If you're waiting uh, in, in line at the DMV, 10 minutes seems like forever. If you're making out with the best looking girl you've ever seen, 10 minutes seems like 10 seconds. The guy goes, that's the best exp explanation of the theory of relativity I've ever heard. Right. But that's time is malleable like that. Right. Like it, like we, it, our perception of it is, is so even though time is objective, our perception of it is, is subjective. Yeah. And the question with this is always, how can you make the good moments sort of pass at the pace of the bad moments? Like, wouldn't it be cool if you could be so, you know, taking in the moment and thinking about it ahead of time and sort of enjoying every bit of it and remembering afterwards that this, you know, kiss could seem to pass as slowly as the 10 minutes in line at the DMV. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that would be really cool. Yeah. Like, And so, yeah, that's what we try to do. And you have this whole chapter in the, just called Linger, right? Like Ode to the Cranberries, you know, homage to the Cranberries, but... You have a whole chapter on lingering, like actually doing this, like learning when something good is happening to stop and smell the roses, so to speak, right? Yeah, well, when something good is happening, I mean, there's people tell, tell you like, oh, enjoy every moment, be in the moment. You can't do No, that. don't enjoy the enjoy. DMV, right? Put don't your, enjoy put your the AirPods DMV. on, listen to a podcast. <laughs> Just like, do what you can to get through that. Um, but... When something is enjoyable, there are certain things we can do to make the experience richer, to last longer, and anything you can do to really sort of savor that experience, to linger in that experience will change your experience of time because it will make the good stuff seem bigger, seem longer in, in your perspective. Um, and when you do that, you feel like you have more time. Yeah, there is a study that came out uh, years ago, and I think I've heard David Brooks and other people quote this, that like, that money buys happiness up to about, this was a couple of years ago, it was like $75,000. Like, like a family of four, whatever, at seventy-five dollars or $77,000, like if you were making $30,000, right, versus seventy-five dollars or $77,000, there was a big change in your happiness, right? Because, but from $77,000 to $770,000, not a big jump. And so you talk, you have a whole chapter called Invest in Your Happiness, and, and you, you talk about the shell game of money. Because a lot of this stuff is not financial, right? Like some of it is certainly. I mean, we all like live. It's a Madonna, right? It's a material world. You know, we're all material girls to some degree. But that can be a real shell game, right? Because 
the the happiness quotient with money kind of it's 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 a complex kind of equation right it is um and i think you know there's there's nuances to that $75,000 thing i mean what what it is is that um you know money can avoid you feeling bad and certain like things, scarcity like, and anxiety scarcity is and anxiety is, is a really horrible thing i mean once you once you're pretty sure you're not going to starve um then then it becomes a different you're not going to get evicted like you know th- then it's a slightly different thing most people do not spend their money in ways that actually bring them happiness. They don't think about what would be the best thing to spend time on, you know, spend money on. One is to buy yourself time. Um, like if you can buy time for more fun leisure activities versus things you don't want to do, uh, then that can be a great use of time. I mean, obviously, you know, the idea of spending on experiences that you will then remember, you can anticipate, enjoy, and remember, um, that adds to your, your happiness level. And of course, spending on relationships because, people turn out to be a good use of time as well. Um, and, and so what, you know, if money can allow you to be closer to the people that you're close to, like if it means, you know, throw a dinner party or go visit a friend that you have to buy a plane ticket to go see, well, then that's a good use of money as well. Yeah, you say that's, I mean, you say that in the book, you have a whole chapter and people generally turn out to be a really good investment in, in time because th- these are, you know, people, it's funny, Barbara Bush said, you know, like uh, she died drinking bourbon talking with friends on the phone like you know like these you know like these deep (laughs) good for her holding holding her (laughs) husband's hand you know like that's how we all want to go right right? (laughs) my wife's like this is your dream you love to talk on the phone you love bourbon like i can hold your hand this is your dream i was like babe it's a little early for talking about my dream but yeah (laughs) it would be good but this years from now (laughs) you have this great thing too about love is acceptance and how basically I, i mean i took away like relationships where your agenda is changing the person versus accepting the person that's going to be a real time frustrator, right? Like because people are not what you want them to be. I mean, people do change, um, but only because they want to, um, not because somebody else has spent an adequate quantity of time worrying about it. Um, you know, even with parenting, which people are like, "But I'm parenting; it's a verb." Can't you see? Like I'm, you know, trying to shape these. People. They are their own people, right? And you I, can do certain things, but you can't do everything. And, and, so, and we know, right? If if a kid gets from zero to two, if they get the message that acceptance is a gift it's a really different thing than if they get the message here to the acceptance is a reward right yeah. psychologically that really changes the game like you know if, if 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 they get the sense that they're unconditionally accepted yeah no i mean i think love is is really about this acceptance and and you can save a lot of time by not trying to make people be different than they are <laughs> because that that's pretty much going to be wasted time um, whereas if you sort of, you know, get to know them as they are, uh, if somebody's in your life, then, um, there's often a, lo- a lot of pleasure in that. And speaking of love, it, in conclusion, it's really interesting. You, you say you journaled everything, even your intimate times with your husband, and you found that every month it was about the same. And so you must have a very collegial marriage. It all works. You said it all just worked out. We had, a, we had about the same intimate time every, you know, consistently. Yeah, it was, it was funny. I mean, because yes, that I track my time. So that made it on my time logs. And, you know, I tracked one year and I added up our total. Just to what find did you out just what... write? XXX or dark? I mean, what did you, how did you? <laughs> I, I used a euphemism for okay, it. Oh, to, I like you know, that. I like that. But, you know, in case somebody sees my time log. Um, but, like, so I added up. I was like, oh, that's an interesting number. I told him my num- I, number. I imagine you know, a friend's going, wow, that's your number? What are we doing wrong? Or, you know. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I kept tracking my time, tracked year two, and I was like, oh, my goodness, it's the exact same number. 
Um, and it's not like it was a multiple of 52. Like, it's not like we were like those people who are every Friday and Saturday or something. You know, it was, it just, it wasn't a number that was a multiple of 52, but it was the same number. So there you go. <laughs> Laura, I love this book. And one of the things I like about it is it's, it strikes me as more descriptive than prescriptive. So many time books about time tell you that there's the three or four or six things. You really don't, it's not technique It's not formulaic. I mean, you give kind of the best practices and then you allow people to sort of, take the, the, you know, these perceptions and shape them as it serves them, which is a really liberating approach to the subject. And it's a great book. Well, thank you very much. I hope your listeners will consider getting a copy and uh, checking it out. Absolutely. It's totally worth it. And and it's a fun read. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for spending some time talking. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Laura for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Off the Clock. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.